If you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, turn me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 945, page 945. Romans chapter 9. For context, I will begin reading in verse 1, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. By this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So I want to begin this morning just by saying, as we look at Romans 9, specifically 6 through 13, um, you may have heard this preached before, you may have heard this talked about before in coffee shops, debated among many people. This is an extremely difficult passage. Um, but I don't know what the title of it is. Above no, number nine in your Bible, mine says God's sovereign choice. That's not scripture, but I believe it. In chapters 1 through 8 of Romans, it focuses on how sinners are made righteous and how God works in and through his children. Chapters 9 through 11 inform us how God's promise to Israel has not failed. And you may be thinking, well, why is that important for me? Let's not get through and discuss history. It should be important to you. If God has failed Israel, then what assurances do you and I have today? If God has made a promise that he has not kept, how can we sit here and say we are God's people and Christ has accomplished everything? But praise be to God, God's promise to Israel has not failed. The God of the Bible is the most high God over all of creation. His promises all come to pass. They do not fail. And therefore, He is trustworthy. And that's why He is worthy of all of our worship all the time. Paul understood these truths. 
and he wrote to the church in Rome, he answered a specific question in chapter 9. If God is a promise keeper and is sovereign over all things, what about Israel? Has the word of God failed because Israel as a whole has rejected Christ and still do today? Has the word of God failed because they have rejected Christ? And chapter 9 is the beginning of the Apostle Paul answering this important question. And how he does this, he discusses the doctrine of election. In verses 1-5, through Paul has a great love for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He lists out eight privileges that he understands extremely well. Adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, patriarchs, and the Christ. They were extremely major privileges for them. But those did not save the Israelites. Like every soul that has been saved, salvation is not by privileges. Salvation is not by keeping of the law. It is not by works. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That God's righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. Last week we discussed Paul's sorrow, Paul's love, and Paul's prayers and deeds. It proved that he wanted his kinsmen saved. I ask you two questions. Question one, whose salvation are you praying for? And two, who are you grieved for and longing to see come to Christ? Those are great questions that come from God's Word from last week, and it is also fruitful for us to ask ourselves, did I do anything with the text last week? Did I think about the truths that Paul was declaring to his church? And here's a new question. Has Romans impacted you the last seven days? As I said when we began this series, and and Blake has also repeated it, if you think you're going to get enough through Romans, through sermons, you are sadly mistaken. We need our love for the Lord to increase as well as our love for the lost to know Christ. The fact that Paul said, if I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off, if I could wish that I myself was damned to hell for the sake of my brothers and sisters... I would do so. Romans 9, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Paul wanted those in Rome to understand first, Israel has all the privileges. Israel as a whole has rejected Christ. But the word of God has not failed. God has not failed. If God has failed, we have no hope and we have no assurance ourselves today. But God has not failed, and he explains, 9.6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. There are children of promise, there are true children, and there are those who are not children of promise. God's word has not failed. Not all Israel is Israel. All the descendants of Israel are not spiritual Israel. Not all belong. There is physical Israel and there is spiritual Israel. Physical Israel as a whole is not saved. Only spiritual Israel is saved. Not all biological descendants are saved. Let's look at it this way. All who are here this morning in this room are not saved. 
Some might have been baptized, and they might, have, they might take of the Lord's Supper week after week, but not all belong to God. A profession of faith without the Holy Spirit is not salvation. Like Israel, you might have the advantages of being in a godly home or a godly church, but those things don't save you. Every individual must be born again. You might descend from a godly family, but you must be given a new heart by God. You might have been baptized, but you must be born again from above. You might be in church week after week, but outside these walls, there is no spirit bearing fruit, no life that obeys the commands of God, no proof of salvation, because attendance does not equal salvation. Not all the visible church is the church. Not all Israel is Israel. In Paul's explanation for God's word not failing, he looks at two Old Testament figures, Isaac and Jacob. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So we must look at the promises of God extremely carefully. Look at Romans 9, beginning in verse 7. Paul describes Isaac. He says, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So not all Israel is Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So let's look at Isaac. So Hold your spot in Romans 9 and go with me to Genesis 12. We have to look at God's promise with careful eyes. With extremely careful eyes. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Let's look at this promise. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So at 75 years of age, the Lord told Abram to go. Abram went. The Lord told Abram a promise. If you do this, I will do this. So turn to Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he threw him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. 
And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now look at Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. Remember it said, Abram believed Yahweh. 16.1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar. She conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Skip down to verse 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So at age 75, the Lord had told Abram, I make you a promise. Time and time and time again, the Lord promised, you will have a son, I will do this. Then you have Sarai, who was later named Sarah, who said, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. So 75 to 86, you're talking 11 years. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So at what age was Sarah going to be in having a child? Ninety. And how old was Abram? A hundred. The Lord has made a promise, and the Lord is saying time and time again, I will do it. God promised Abraham a son through Sarah. Abram and Sarah, they did not wait upon the Lord They became flustered and frustrated. Abraham had a son, but it was not through Sarah. It was through Hagar. That son was Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the promise. Sarah had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac was the promised son. If you look at Genesis 21, beginning in verse 1, the Lord confirms this. 
Yahweh visited Sarah as he'd said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, I would nurse children? Yet I have bore him a son in his old age, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had bore to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Even in walking through the life of Abraham, you see Abraham and Sarah, they were not faithful all the time. You see, a promise was made by God, and when God makes a promise, he's saying, I am giving you this promise. I am going to do it. And in God doing it, he said, I am fulfilling this, not for your purpose, but for my purpose. The Lord made a promise with Abraham concerning him and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands, not trusting the Lord, not waiting upon him. And Abraham had a boy named Ishmael with Hagar. The more and more you see this, the more and more you see the unfolding. The only reason Sarah had a child is because God made a promise. God did it. Abraham didn't believe that God was going to do it. The Lord kept his promise, and Sarah had a child, and his name was Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. So why in the world is Paul bringing this up and talking about God keeping his promise to Israel? Why talk about this under the banner of unconditional election? Because God has never failed. Not all national Israel are children of promise. God has a remnant. Not every physical descendant is a child of promise. Just those who came through Isaac. Isaac's descendants are the children of promise. The children of Hagar were not promised by God. They are not the children of promise. Therefore, within God's election, God's promise, He has not failed. He has saved those who are children of promise. God's redeeming love is selective. Just as a husband has a special love for his wife, God has a special love for his church. So let's look at example two. Go back to Romans 9. Romans 9, beginning in verse 10. He gives us another Old Testament example. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
So the first Old Testament example was Isaac. The second is Jacob. So hold your spot, Romans 9. Go back to Genesis 25. Let's look at this promise together. In Genesis 25, beginning in verse 21, we find these words. And Isaac prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh, and Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her room. The first came out of red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the promise was to Isaac, followed by Jacob, but Jacob was not the firstborn, the oldest, yet he was chosen by God. Esau was the firstborn, but he was not chosen. Esau was not chosen because of anything he would or would not do. Did you see that in Romans? He was not yet born and had not done good or bad when God passed over him. Esau was not chosen because it was God's will. It was his purpose in election before the foundation of the world that Esau was not chosen. Being chosen or elected is not based upon works, but upon God who calls. The word election here means to pull out or to choose. Former R.C. Sproul, he would paint this picture of election and he would, he would, he would drop it as if a man was lowering a bucket into the bottom of the well. And God would put that person in the bucket. And God would raise the rope. God would bring the person out of the bucket. And the Lord would clean off that person. Many would pose this question. Who is the person that was doing all the work? The Lord. What did man do? Man was passive. God said here, the older will serve the younger, and it was so. In example one with Isaac, we see God's unconditional election through a specific promise by way of Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. In example two with Jacob, we see God's unconditional election through Isaac and Rebekah, but God did not choose the oldest son, but the youngest son. God said, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. God did not love Jacob because of what he did or did not do. 
God did not love Jacob because of his works. He had not yet even been born. God loved Jacob because he chose Jacob. It was God's purpose in election. Some Jews have been chosen. Some Gentiles have been chosen. Not all are chosen. God has a special love for his children, his bride, his elect. God's redeeming love is selective. Romans 9, verse 12. She, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Let's unpack this. Because if we are honest here, our natural inclination is to extremely rebel against what was just said. You're telling me that the God of all creation has just said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I mean, Rebecca was told, by God, the older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is not how this is supposed to go. This is not the custom. The oldest son is to enjoy all the privileges. God is changing things up. God is breaking the custom. Why? Because God's elective purposes do not follow earthly customs. It is His sovereign purpose of election that rules the day, and it rules the day every day. God does not elect based upon foreknowledge. God does not elect based upon our works. He elects His children before the foundation of the world based upon His purpose of election. That's it. Verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is quoting Malachi 1 here. Malachi 1 that Blake read earlier, I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's very descriptive. What God is saying is, not only have I not chosen him, but I have left him to the jackals of the desert. Meaning, judgment for Esau was on the horizon. I am going to take everything from him. We learn once again that children of the flesh are not children of promise. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all biologically are chosen. Not even twins. God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We see a special love, an agape love for Jacob because God elected him. God hated or detested Esau. When you break down this word here, God rejected Esau. God passed over Esau, leaving Esau in his sin, not extending redemptive love. And this rejection was true before they were even born. John MacArthur said of this verse, God chose one for divine blessing and protection, and the other he left to divine judgment. As we will see in the next few weeks to come, God does not create people for the purpose of assigning them to hell, but he does decide the disposition, the disposition of rebels. 
He decides that. God grants repentance to faith to some, and others He leaves them in their sin. Now, if we look at this from our perspective, if we are reading this and we're declaring out this is not fair, and we're saying this is not the God of the Bible, we have to realize this is the God of the Bible. If we're looking at it from our perspective, then that means we're trying to climb a ladder up to heaven from what we can see and what we decide is fair. If we're saying it's not fair, that means we will begin to look through the Bible and pull Bible verses from memory out of context to fit our position. If we look at election from God's perspective, the question is not, why does God not save everyone? That's not the question. The question from God's perspective, if if God is holy, God is good, and God is just, why does God save anyone at all? Because we're all sinners separated from Him. That is the ultimate question. Why does God save anyone? One of my favorite pastors, Paul Washer, he walked into a room and he knew that the entire room was against him. And he wanted to begin with something that drew their attention. And so he said this, I'm going to tell you the scariest thing in all the Bible. And everyone's like, okay, I'm ready for it. He says, God is good. They all looked around and they were puzzled. And they're like, why is that the scariest thing in all the Bible? Because if God is good, you must ask yourself the question, what does a good God do with us? Because you, in your heart, with God's law written on it, you know at your core you're not. You recognize sin after sin after sin that you've committed, where even after God has redeemed you by His grace and His great love for you, that you have fallen short. It is God who calls. It is God who saves. He elects, and it's His purpose of election. Only the children of promise are the children of God. Further study shines more light on God's goodness and kindness to the elect. Let's just go back to the Old Testament. You see Abram and Sarah, and you see how they weren't always faithful and they took things in their own hands. You look at Jacob and Esau. You don't read the story of Jacob and Esau and you walk away thinking, oh, Jacob, that makes perfect sense. Jacob, I loved. God, I get it. I see it. No, no, you don't. You don't read the story of Jacob and you're like, oh my goodness, that makes sense. You actually pause and say, are you kidding me? Like, this is the one that you saved? Jacob didn't give food to his brother. His food was, he was, his brother was dying, comes in from a hunt. And so Jacob says, I'm not going to give you food unless you give me your birthright. Jacob lied and tricked his father, receiving his father's blessing. He lived up to the meaning of his name, which means supplanter or trickster. That's what he was. He was a trickster. He supplanted things so he could get what he wanted. Why Jacob? I want to get personal. Why you? Why did God save you? 
It was his purpose of election. It was his sovereign choice. There was no reason to pick Jacob. There was no reason to pick Esau. And there is no reason to pick you. There is no reason to pick me. If you remember what Paul discussed in Romans 8, looking at the five links, the golden chain of summarizing salvation, you have foreknowledge, you have predestination, you have calling, you have justification, and you have glorification. God had intimate knowledge of his children. His children were predestined before the foundation of the world. He calls them to himself. He justifies them and he will glorify them. In all of this, in the, all of the golden chain, you are passive in it all. The only reason you repent and believe is because God has given you the faith to do it. Salvation is a work of God alone. God's unconditional election is clearly seen here in our text this morning in Romans 9. Verse 6, not all are children of Israel. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham. Verse 8, not all are children of promise. Verse 11, why is this, God? Why is this? This is God's purpose of election. It is God who calls. Unconditional election is so visible in these verses, honest souls must open up the Bible and ignore it if you're refusing to believe it. You must ignore it. Because if you look at the words, if you look at the text, if you look at the context, if you parse the words and break it down, you have to just ignore it. Unconditional election is not based upon our works, and it's not based upon what we will do, but upon God who wills, upon God who shows mercy, upon our sovereign God who elected before the foundation of the world. So has the word of God failed because Israel as a whole has rejected Christ? No, not at all. God has never failed, and God will never fail. And maybe you have not deeply studied this before, and you're saying to yourself, this seems unjust of a holy, good, loving God. This seems unjust because how does God still find fault? Fault of those who are not saved. That doesn't seem very loving. You have to remember, God is holy, holy, holy. He is not just love. He is also just. He is not just just. He is also the one who will punish sin. He cannot overlook sin. And Paul answers those exact questions in the verses to come. This seems unjust of God. Paul gets there. How does God still find fault? Paul gets there. Paul answers these questions next week. But there are three things I want you to keep in mind before we gather next week, before we look into God answering these questions. Number one, we are not God. You can take unconditional election to an unhealthy extreme and you can say, you know who the elect are. No, you don't. You do not. Therefore, we preach Christ and Christ crucified to all. We call all to repent and believe. Number two, God's sovereignty and unconditional election are wonderful truths to hold on to as we fulfill the Great Commission. In days ahead, we're going to have fall festival here. 
If it's the exact repeat of last year, we might have 500 people here that show up on the grounds. If we share the gospel with someone, I have assurance, and I want everyone here to have assurance, God will take that and do with it what he wills. Their salvation is not based on my presentation. Their salvation is not me on being so special with my words. God will draw whom he wills for his name and his glory. We are to go and we are to proclaim. And number three, God is thrice holy. We are the sinners. It is healthy for us to remember that as sinners, we do not deserve Jesus. We don't deserve Jesus. We deserve punishment in hell under his wrath. If you are saved, thank him and praise him for your salvation. Because when we look at this text, I mean, when we look at Paul bringing this up to the church in Rome, he's bringing up Old Testament examples that he knew they were familiar with. He said Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And he already covered Romans 2. Romans 2, 28-29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and a physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Salvation is not based upon ethnicity, but upon God's grace in saving the sinner. God calls some to salvation. What a great God we serve. We should find comfort in this. If you are elect, if you have been born again, if you are 100% sure of your salvation, praise Him. You don't deserve it. All the things that you wish for and long for, they are nothing compared to Christ. Christ is everything. Find comfort in Christ because apart from God's election, we would all be lost. If I can choose to follow Christ today, I will choose to not follow him tomorrow. We should find comfort in this. Christ did not come to make men savable. Christ did not die on the cross so that hopefully people will come. Christ came and he died for those whom he predestined from the foundation of the world. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. There is no one in this room, there is no pastor on the planet, there is no spiritual guru that you can look to, and they can honestly look at you and say, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. That's why in God's Bible we have examine yourself. That's why God says, make your calling and election sure. That's why God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you feel like a little child sitting before the Lord. And you're honestly looking at your life saying, I don't deserve this. Why did you save me? And if you're not his... 
If you know that you've just been playing a game with God and you've been going through the motions and you're answering the right questions, but it's not really true in your heart, you are commanded by God to repent and believe. You don't sit back and use the excuse, well, I sure hope I am the elect. No, you're called to call on Christ, to cry out to him. If your repentance is true, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As God's children, let us remember the teaching of election, the teaching of unconditional election, that is for us to cherish because we look at it and we say, I didn't do anything right. There is nothing good in me. God has done it all. As His child, we need that. But in the teaching of God's Word too, to the church, we know that there's always unbelievers that are here. And the unbelievers who hear that They're thinking, so you're saying I cannot earn my salvation. You're saying I can't do good. My good works cannot outweigh my bad. Yes! You need Christ. Call on Him for salvation. Turn to Him. Come to Him. Repent of your sins. Ask Him to save you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If this is true of you, you are the elect. But the only person who knows that it's true of is you. The Lord knows what's in here, not just what comes out of here. He knows your heart. Father, we thank you for your holy word. What a difficult text when you declared the words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And all this was because it is your purpose of election. Not just in salvation, but in everything that goes on in this life. There are so many things in which we are not smart enough. We are not capable of understanding. We are not able to grasp what it is that you are doing because you have caused something or allowed something to happen. We can pick event after event and we can say, Lord, I don't know why you did this. You are God. We are not. You are in heaven. You do as you please. May we as your children trust you, rely upon you, and just be obedient children who are thankful that you have called to yourself. Father, there is no one who is righteous. There is not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If we have turned to you, it is by your grace. Father, teach us, mature us so that we would cherish this more and more. That as you saved Paul, you saved us. As we were running from you, you called us to yourself. We did not love you first. You loved us. What a great God you are of undeserving people. We know salvation is of you, and that's why we come to you and we beg you, Lord, draw the lost in this room to you. Use us as we share the gospel with others, as we read the word, 
as we tell them what you have said, draw people to you. We don't deserve it. Our country does not honor you. We say things with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Lord, make this church pleasing to you, not because we can say, look at what we've done, but we can say, Lord, look at what you have done. It is all you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.